the Lord a hand this morning. All right. Uh, we are in the Gospel of Luke, Luke still. If you're new to Revolution, one book at a time, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, and just see exactly what God has to say for us. Um, there we go. How are you this morning? Good. How are you? Good. All right, y'all follow along on the screen or in your paper Bible as uh, Ashley reads God's word for us this morning. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for the power came out from him and healed all of them. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that your word is true. Your word is divinely inspired. We are privileged to hold it into our hands and to read it and study it. Father, for you alone have the words of truth and eternal life. So we look to you this morning to change our hearts, our minds, and to make us more like Christ. May the word of God do what it does. We believe that it is uh, true and living and active and alive in our lives, and we just uh, are expecting great things to you. Open our hearts and minds for us to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Super Bowl 50, the Cardinals and the Packers were going into overtime, and like the game starts, the same way overtime starts with a coin flip. The NFL can't seem to get coin flips right. <laughs> just a few years prior to that, the Patriots called tails, and the ref goes, it's heads, and he called it backwards, and they're like, we called tails, and he's like, but you called heads, and they got a big mix, and the Patriots didn't get the football, and here, this time, the guy flips the coin, and the coin doesn't flip. It goes up in the air flat, it hits the ground, flip over. So they had to flip it over again. And, you know, we don't leave life's choices up to coin tosses, thankfully, okay? Um, there is a time to flip a coin, and, and things like that, but a lot of people think, well, I just have bad luck, or I'm just cursed, or... Good things happen. Say, well, I'm blessed. And in Proverbs, it says the curse without a cause doesn't come. Bad things happen for a reason. Good things happen for a reason. Sometimes it's life in general, but it's never because of luck. We don't, we don't believe in luck. We don't believe in coincidences. We believe that God is in total control. And today, Jesus talks about blessings and woes, okay? And so none, neither of those happen because of just random chance. So we're going to divide this passage up into three parts. First of all, we'll see the miracles for the multitudes, and then we'll see the blessings by the Beatitudes, and finally the woes to the worldly. So we'll start here with the miracles. Ask yourself this question. What would have been like... Let me see. I'm sorry. I went the wrong direction. Here we go. It says, and he came down. Because last week, remember, where did Jesus go to pray? He went to a mountain place. 
and now he's coming down, which is interesting because this passage is talking about the Beatitudes, and in Matthew's gospel, he goes up because Jesus taught the same message twice, and you'll see an interesting parallel we'll talk about later between the two passages. It says he came down with them. That's talking about the 12 apostles. Remember last week we talked about the 12 lessons from choosing the 12 apostles. So here he's coming down with this 12 that he's just chosen. He's letting them know that they're going to be the special representatives of his kingdom. And so they've had a time of prayer. They come down and there's a, they're with a, and they stood on a level place. That's important. Some people call this the Sermon on the Plain. There's a Sermon on the Mount, a mountain, and a Sermon on the Plain. It's two different things. Skeptics will look at this and say, oh, there's a contradiction in the Bible. Here and over here, it has Jesus teaching the Sermon on the Mount on a mountain, and here it has the Sermon on the Plain. And if you look at the content of the two, they don't match and things like that. There we go. And, uh, and it's like, wait a minute. How many times did Jesus possibly, probably teach the same message over and over again? I have a sermon series called Characters Around the Cross. I've preached it at Lighthouse. I've preached it at Berean. I've preached it up in a revival in Central Texas. I've preached it here. It's a good sermon series, and when you've got a good sermon series, you use it over and over again. Jesus had the best sermon in the history of the world, and he preached it at different locations, and he might alter it and change it to match the audience, and you'll see that's what happened here. But again, if you're, if you're a skeptic, I, might, I have no problem with that. We have, we have on our sign often out here, a lawn changes the sign for us, and sometimes we put up there, skeptics welcome. And we do that, and we, we welcome question and answer. If you're watching online, you have a question about the Bible or maybe a contradiction or a problem you have with the Bible, text it in. We'll, we'll answer that question. Here's what I, the problem I have with most skeptics. They don't really want to know the truth. That's the, that's the truth. And it's because their hearts are hardened and their eyes are blind. We need to pray for them because many of us were in that same boat before we came to Christ. You can be skeptical about something in the Bible, but search for an answer. Don't just find, oh, there's a contradiction. Good. See, I don't have to believe the Bible. And let me just say this. If you think you found a supposed contradiction in the Bible, which I believe there are none, let me tell you this. Does that mean Jesus didn't rise from the dead? You still have to deal with that life, world-changing issue. Did Jesus Christ raise from the dead? If he did, what does that mean for you? That means it proves who he is. So he's on a level plane with a great crowd. We don't know how many, but possibly a thousand or more. And, and it says a great crowd of his disciples. So notice the distinction between the apostles and the disciples. He, remember, there was a great crowd of disciples, and from among them he chose 12 apostles. And so that distinction is also important. And then a great multitude of people. So he's got the 12, he's got a couple hundred disciples maybe, and then a great multitude, which is at least usually a thousand people from all Judea, Jerusalem, the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So if you were to look at a map, it means from all directions. People came literally from all over Israel to, to hear Jesus teach. This was no local phenomenon. And, and, they, and it came to hear him and to be healed. I think Luke is being very precise when he puts them in that order. This is not the first time that he put the hearing of the word in front of the healing. Healings are great. Healings are amazing. We believe that God does heal and God does supernatural things. But hearing the word of God is more important. In fact, many times we saw people who all they wanted was the healing. All they wanted was the fish sandwiches when Jesus fed the multitudes. And Jesus says, you know, it's a wicked sign. Uh, generation seeks always after a sign. You know, if you're always looking for the, sp uh, the supernatural, the, the miraculous, whatever, instead of just the word of God, the priorities are. Both are important, but the hearing him was more important. 
And it says, to be healed from all their diseases. Now watch the distinction here. And those who were troubled with unclean, unclean spirits. People go to two different extremes with these two things. People today say, well, back then they didn't know medicine. They didn't know psychology. They thought everybody who had you know, um, Tourette's syndrome or whatever. There are all these different things. We're just demon-possessed. But now we're educated, we're enlightened, we know better. There's no such thing as demon possession. That's not true. There are sicknesses that are related to demonic, and there's sicknesses that are not. And here he makes a distinction between the two. Many people go to the other extreme, that every sickness and everything, every mental, emotional disorder, every, you know, diabetes, whatever, it's all demonic. And the Bible doesn't say, lump them all in the one category or the other. It makes a distinction between the two, and Jesus did as well. So they, they were healed of their diseases and their unclean spirits, and, uh, and they were cured. So Jesus is backing up, verifying who he was by the miracles. You see that over and over again in the Old Testament, where prophets would come forward saying, Thus saith the Lord, and they'd be like, well, How do we know we listen to you? And they would perform a miracle that would validate what they did. Remember Moses? stands before Pharaoh and says, let God's people go. And Pharaoh's like, who are you that I should listen to you? Cast down the, the, the rod, turns to a serpent. The miracles were to back up the message. The miracle always backs up the message. So they, it says, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Does that, does that ring a bell to another story? Remember the lady with the issue of blood for many, many years could not be healed? spent all of her money, all of her fortune, everything to be healed by doctors and all kinds of things, uh, you know, possibly even like what we would call witchcraft today, and nothing worked. And then she's just like, if I could just touch the hem or the fringe of his garment, I would be healed. And then when Jesus was touched, he had a whole crowd around him. He said, wait a minute, who touched me? And the disciples were like, what do you mean who touched you? You're crowded by a whole bunch of mob of people who are all touching you. He's like, no, but power went out from me which is a powerful story in The Chosen, by the way. And uh, so the crowd's doing this. They're wanting to touch and be touched by Jesus and to be healed. Can you imagine what would it be like to have been there to touch the body of Jesus and be healed? That would be pretty spectacular. I mean, imagine you're like really, really sick. You know, pick any disease. And you're just like, oh, I feel so bad. And like, if I could just touch Jesus. And you put your hand on Jesus' shoulder and like... You know, I don't know, did it tingle? Was it goosebumps? I don't know what it felt like. I know it felt better because you were healed. And uh, when we think about, we, you know, it's, we don't want to just read our Bibles. Okay, good, close my Bible, let me go about my day. Put yourself in the story and think about what this would have been like. And then think about how this would have been celebrated. Like, if all these people were being healed, like two friends go and they're both sick. One's blind and one's got a paralyzed leg and they're helping each other walk and they get there and they both touch it and they're like, look at you, look at you, look at you. You're like, oh wow, hug and all stuff. Just the mass excitement that would have been all over the place. But you know what? There's more to it than that. This is a picture of the body of Christ today. We are the body of Christ. And this is why Christianity is a communal religion. It is meant to be done together. Many other religions in the world are very private. Well, it's, my, my religion is very personal, it's very private. I just stay home, I meditate, I, I go fishing, I get in touch with the universe or nature or whatever. That is not Christianity at all. Christianity is togetherness. We are the body of Christ. We are the hands and the feet, the eyes and the ears. And when we touch the body of Christ, there's power here. Now, it may not feel as supernatural as that, and someday we'll experience that, but there's something more deep 
and more profound than just a physical healing. There's lives being changed by the body of Christ. There's hearts being opened. There's eyes that where blindness is taken away in a spiritual sense, which is more important. And so all these things are happening because we are a picture of the body of Christ. Then we move into the blessings by the Beatitudes. It's interesting, again, I've said that Matthew records a set of Beatitudes, but so does Luke, but it's not the same sermon, and it's not a contradiction. Jesus preached the principles of the same two to two different audiences with two different, two different messages in mind. Matthew, he went up to a mountain, and Luke, he came down from a mountain to a plain. In Matthew's, he says, blessed are they, and there's a hypothetical they, anybody out there who does this, you'll be blessed, but Luke had a more specific message in mind. He looked at his disciples and said, blessed are you. He's talking to the 12 here. So there are different, different audience in mind for each of these. Matthew talks about what it takes to get into the kingdom of God, and Luke talks about what it's like to be in the kingdom of God. These people are already in the kingdom. So the first Beatitudes is, if you, hey, you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, here's what you got to do. But Luke says, hey, now that you're in the kingdom of, heaven, kingdom of heaven, here's what it's going to be like. Matthew describes nine Beatitudes. Luke, anybody have an idea? He has four. Okay? He limits the list because, two, again, two different audiences, two different messages, but both called Beatitudes. In Matthew, there's no woes at the end, but Luke offers four woes, which contrast the four Beatitudes. If you want to remember what a beatitude is, by the way, it's an attitude that should be. Okay, think about it that way. Um, Matthew talks about those who are poor in spirit, but Luke only talks about the poor, and I believe he literally means the poor, or at least including that, as well as to be spiritually poor. Matthew's talking about poor in spirit only. In Matthew's uh, account of the beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Again, he's talking in the spiritual realm. But Luke says, no, blessed are the hungry. Again, that, that coalesces with the whole idea of poor as well. So it says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and he said, blessed are you. So he's talking to the 12, but the whole crowd is hearing this. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And again, he doesn't say poor in spirit. Um, let's talk about what it means to be poor. First of all, when you're poor in the physical sense of what this world has to offer, it means you're having little or no resources, but it's temporary. It's in this world, but you're part of the kingdom of God. And it doesn't mean that God's will is for everybody to be poor. I'm not saying that at all. He's just saying for those who are poor, and he's talking about the disciples because they've abandoned everything, okay, in fact, he commanded them, when you go to certain places, don't take anything with you. Sometimes he told them to take a little bit. Sometimes he told them to take nothing. But again, they've all walked away from their resources. They're depending on a lot of people's donations. In fact, there's several women who are raising money to support the ministry. So these guys are dependent upon that. And so, but when you're in the kingdom of God, you're having all resources eternally in the world to come. You're poor now, but for eternity, you'll be rich. You'll be part of my kingdom uh, the, the one who has a cattle on a thousand hills. Being poor in this life means being powerless and oppressed in the world. Being in the kingdom means being powerful and free for all eternity. Being poor in this world means you have no name or reputation. You have no standing in this world. Being part of the kingdom is having a new name and ruling with Christ in his kingdom. 
It's interesting, statistically speaking, people who are poor are more likely to receive the gospel than the rich. Now, skeptics will say, well, that's because the poor are less educated and they're stupid, and they, that's why they believe the Bible. That's not true. <laughs> Don't think that everybody around the world that doesn't have as much money as we do in America is stupid, okay? There are rice farmers in South Korea that are far more intelligent than many of us and more in touch with what they do. They just don't live in a culture that you know, magnifies PhDs and things like that. Don't be a cultural snob where we think we're just so much smarter than everybody who lived hundreds of years ago or anybody else in the world. It's, it's, just, it's just a common bias and it's a prejudice that's just not very healthy. It, it's what earns us the reputation as the ugly American and that Western mindset where we think we're smarter than everybody else around the world. Um, People who are poor depend on God more. People who are rich, like, I don't need God. In fact, you see that happen all the time where one of the, one of the prayers in Proverbs is, Lord, don't make me so rich that I think I have no need of you. And that often happens. Again, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that there aren't rich people who are Christians, and I'm not saying everybody who's poor is a believer. We've seen, obviously, where both aren't necessarily true. Um, 1 Corinthians one twenty six. the Bible backs this up. It's not just a statistic. For consider your calling, brothers, consider how you were called to be a believer. Not many of you, doesn't say not any of you, just as not many of you were wise. God doesn't call the most, the people who think they're just so smart, okay? And according to worldly standards, not saying wise in biblical sense, wisdom in a biblical sense is very good, wisdom in a worldly sense, not so good. Not many of you were powerful, didn't call a lot of presidents and vice presidents and senators and things like that. Uh, not many of you were of noble birth, you weren't born rich. And then he goes on to say, but God chose what is what? Foolish in the world, and he did this to what? To put to shame those who think they're so wise. God chose the weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised, which we could also add to this, poor in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. And here's why. So that no human might boast or glory in the presence of God. We're all guilty, and I am too, of when we see like an athlete like C.J. Stroud profess Christ and talk about the gospel so openly, and we get really excited about it, and that's good, okay? I'm not saying that shouldn't happen. But sometimes I think we're excited about it, like, wow, if a lot of young people look to him, then they'll become Christians. And God's like, uh-uh, that's not my plan, <laughs> okay? Because if all the superstars in the NBA and the NFL and Major League Baseball and famous people in Hollywood all became Christians and a revival broke out, who would get the credit for that? Famous people would. But when revival breaks out in America, it's like, what's happening here? Just a bunch of poor people coming to Christ. And what, well, who are they? Why would we listen to them? Man, this must be miraculous because God's using the low and the, 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 the people who are not considered wise in this world. And so it's all the work of God in that situation. And then it goes on and says, God chose what is low and despised in the world. You think about this. You travel the world. Like we went to Ghana a few years ago. Poor, poor, poor. 53% unemployment in Ghana. Okay? People struggling to find just enough to eat, just enough to live, living in basically mud-type houses, things like that. Happiest people you'd ever want to meet. They would share their food with you. We, we went to Monterey, Mexico, long years before that. Very, very poor people, just giving everything, just happy. You never heard people sing so loud in church as you'd heard in Monterey, Mexico. 
They put us to shame. I mean, you just could not hear yourself. Everybody just singing so loud, rejoicing in the Lord, just happy people. You know, man of worldwide, we give to them, and they give kids in Honduras, you know, books about Jesus for Christmas. The kids are so thrilled. They're so happy. They don't even have shoes, but they're excited to have a book about Jesus, okay? Who, who you, you see kids in America today, and it's like, oh, man, I don't have an iPhone 15. Wow, come on, Mom, my phone's dead. And we're just, as America, we're just spoiled rotten, and we think nothing about God. And people around the poor, it's just like, oh, thank you, Jesus, for this bowl of rice today. And it just, that, that, because wealth does bad things to us. In China, this was a prayer meeting because their pastor and several of their parents were put in prison for being Christians. And yet these people rejoice in the Lord that they're counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Money is not bad, okay? Don't hear what I'm not saying. Money is not bad. It is neutral. But sinful people make money sinful, and the more we get of it, usually the more proud and prideful we become. Again, there are some exceptions. There are some people who can handle wealth greatly. In the Old Testament, you see Abraham, King Solomon, and several others uh, becoming very wealthy, and God blessed them with wealth. But in the New Testament, it's like God just flipped the whole thing upside down. It's like the more godly you were, the more poor you were, and the, and the more tragic your life became. And I think God's trying to teach us that it doesn't matter which way it goes. God doesn't call us to be wealthy. He calls us to be godly. In, in Matthew 19, he's, Jesus says to disciples, truly, and this, let me just give you the backstory here. There was a young, a rich run, young ruler who came to Jesus and said, hey, I want to be on your team, you know, and everybody's like, wow, look at him. He's good looking. He's successful. He, he's looked up to. He's considered very religious. Man, he'd be a great addition. And Jesus says, oh, I tell you what, I want you to just take everything you have and give it to the poor. Just sell it all and give it, distribute it to the poor. And the guy's like, what? He's like, yeah. Now, Jesus wasn't come up with his own plan of salvation for this one guy. He knew what the idol of his heart was. He idolized his money. And the guy didn't say, oh, yeah, okay, done. He's like, he went away sad because he had a lot, and he wasn't willing to follow Jesus because of his wealth. Wealth can be a major stumbling block. Look what Jesus says. He said, truly, I say to you, with difficulty... Not impossibility, but with difficulty will a rich, young, rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And man, the disciples are dumbfounded by this. They say, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. They said, well, then who can be saved? Because in that culture, they thought the richer you were, the more blessed you were by God. And therefore, man, you must be closer to God than the rest of us. And Jesus is like, no. Those people think they're close to God, but they're actually not. And he goes on to say, he looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. If it was just up to man, no. No rich people would ever get saved. But with God, what? All things are possible. So rich people can get saved, and there's poor people that can be lost. He's not making a sweeping generalization where it's, it's all true for one or the other in that, those circumstances. He says, but and then he moves on to say, blessed are you who are hungry now. Now, if you're poor, you're probably hungry. Those two are coupled together. He says, but you're hungry when? You're hungry now, but you, in the future, shall be satisfied. That may be future in this life, but if not, it's in the future for eternity. And I think what the picture I'm seeing here is you think about manna. Remember when the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And he says, okay. You, part of the prayer is give us this day what? 
our daily bread. Our what bread? Our daily bread. That's a throwback, a hyperlink to the Old Testament where they were hungry in the wilderness and they prayed for something to eat. And every day God called manna, basically like angel food, to fall to the earth. We don't know exactly what it is. They said what it tasted like. And stuff. But little tiny loaves of bread or something like that that was very good, kind of tasted like honey and things like that. And they got it daily. In fact, because they weren't supposed to gather food and work on the Sabbath, how much came on Friday? Twice as much, so they didn't gather any on, on uh, the Sabbath. And what happened if you gathered too much and got greedy? It's spoiled, right? And so, but everybody who gathered always seemed to have enough. It's almost like it was multiplying, which was a picture of Jesus multiplying the loaves in, in the New Testament. What he, God's trying to teach us here is dependence on Him. When we have our dependence on our 401k or our bank statement balance, we are in trouble. Because all that could be gone in a heartbeat. We don't think it can, but it can. God wants you to depend on him every single day like you either have two cents or two million dollars. It doesn't matter. He wants you to depend on him. And so I'm not telling you don't go out there and make a good living. I'm not saying that at all. But recognize that your ability to make a good living is not because, oh, I'm just so smart, I work so hard. Well, yes, God blessed that, but God's the one who gave you breath to do all that, and God's the one who chose to, you, for you to be born where you are. I work fairly hard, but I know for a fact there's people in third world countries working so hard that puts me to shame and don't have the money to show for it. They're smarter than I am, they're working harder than I am, but they just weren't privileged to be born in our country. We need to recognize we are po- totally dependent upon God at all times. When we strive to have comfort and luxury and all that stuff again, and we just depend on it so we can just sit back and go, okay, good, now I can relax. That's in a dangerous place. Again, I'm not saying it's wrong to have this kind of house, but this can be dangerous for most Americans, for most Christians, because they think, oh, I've got it made. I don't have anything. I'm fine. I've got a security system. I've got a nine millimeter. I've got everything. Nobody's going to hurt me or harm me. As if, who needs God now? I've got everything in place. Here's how God wants us to be, like a little tiny baby, totally dependent on its mom. That's how God wants us to be. Just like, I need my, I need my mom, I love my mom. If I'm going to start without my mom, I, I need my mom. And what's interesting is one of the names for God, um, now I'm blanking out which one, not El Shaddai, uh, it actually means breasted one. It's talking about how God in his, in his divinity is like a mother who nurses his child. And so, This is the dependence God wants. He wants us to be that way every day and in every way. Then he says, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Again, you're weeping when? Now, you're laughing in the future, whether it's in the future in this life or in the future in the kingdom to come. So he's talking to the 12, and the question is, what is there about the 12 that they need to be weeping over? Number one, over the sin in repentance. See, one of the things that uh, Martin Luther said during the Reformation is all of life is repentance. Once you repent to be saved and you're born again, the rest of your life is repentance. It's always like, oh, God, I'm failing you in this way. Please give me grace to succeed. God, I've, I've sinned in this way. Please forgive me of my sin. And you're constantly, daily, every, all day, every day, repenting over something. And it's like, before you were saved, you're like, you didn't care about your sin. In fact, you thoroughly enjoyed your sin. And now it's like, oh, man, I'm weeping over my sin. I'm sad over my sin. The second thing is over the realization of, of, of the lost world. Wow, now that I know Christ, look at all my relatives and friends who do not know Christ, and we weep for them and the, the lost world. 
Number three, over the persecution to come. He told them, hey, they persecuted me. They're going to persecute you as well. It's coming. And so there was a weeping that would happen. And also, they would be weeping, the disciples, for many that would, that would die for Christ. They themselves would die. They would see brothers and sisters die. They would see families torn apart. Jesus says, hey, you think I brought, came to bring priests? I came to bring a sword. Mother against son, daughter against father-in-law. The, the, the families will be divided. There's going to be a lot to weep over. And, and, you know, this is, I think of all the things that Jesus teaches, and a lot of it's really hard to hear. I, I would rather say, hey, here's three ways to make a better marriage, you know, or here's four steps to practical parenting or, you know, whatever, just all kinds of things. Which I'm not saying all those are bad, but when you go verse by verse through Scripture, you come across these tough passages. And he's telling the disciples, hey, you're, you're going to weep now, but you'll laugh someday. And he says, goes on to say, blessed, and this is just amazing. We were talking about this morning, some uh, Patrick and Stacey, I talked about the difference between joy and happiness. This is not saying, you know, oh, yay, giddy. This is just deep down inside a knowing of being in a blessed state before God. And look at the list here. When people hate you, I don't like to be hated. Man, it's like, it bothers me when someone says something bad about me. It's like, oh, golly. But sometimes you're in tough positions where if you stand up for right, people are going to hate you. And they exclude you say, well, if you're, if you're going to act that way, I don't want to be around you. And of course, this specifically was fulfilled in the synagogue. People were kicked out of the synagogue. The synagogue was the heartbeat of the community. I mean, all your networking connections, all your friendships, your relatives, your business connections, all of it revolved around the synagogue. And to be disfellowshipped and kicked out of the synagogue, and that happened to many believers. And they'll revile you and they'll spurn your name as evil. They'll talk bad about you. And we live in a culture today where if you stand up for good, you're called evil, you're called transphobic, you're called ignorant, you're called all kinds of names just for standing up for right. They treat your name as evil. But all of this happens not for being an idiot, but on account of the Son of Man, because you're connected with Jesus. And he says, but in spite of all that list right there, he says you're blessed. Interesting. And he says, here's what I want you to do. The day that they reject you, the day that they call you evil, the day they say, you know what, I hate you, get out of our synagogue, I want you to rejoice. Not eventually, and that day, I want you to rejoice that day. I want you to leap for joy. Yay, we're kicked out of the synagogue. <laughs> Yay, my mom's not speaking to me anymore. <laughs> you know, it's just like, wait a minute, are you crazy, Jesus? But this is what he's asking of us. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. That's how you can rejoice. If your eyes are on this life, you are going to be depressed. But if you put all the context of all the bad that's happening to you, but in the eyes of heaven, you say, hey, this is just this long. Eternity is so long I can't comprehend. In fact, I will be rewarded for all this in heaven. I'll be in the presence of my Savior. It's going to be okay. You know, I had a medical procedure a few years ago, and it was so painful. Oh, my gosh, it was so painful. They didn't warn me about this, you know. And they're like, okay, but this is all right. I, I just tell myself, life is going to be better after this procedure. Oh my gosh, this is so painful. But life is going to be better after this procedure. I'm like, I'm glad I did this. I'm glad I did this. You know, and you, you just have to look through the pain into what God has for you down the future. He says, for, he said, because so their fathers, their is talking about these religious people who are persecuting them, the, the apostles. They did it to the prophets. They did it to Jeremiah. They did it to Isaiah. They did it to Obadiah. They did, you name the list. They were all treated badly in the past. 
this, this was fulfilled in Acts chapter 5. It says that when they had called the, in the apostles, this 12, so years later this is happening, they beat them, okay? They beat them with rods on their back. They, they broke flesh, they bled, all these things. They, they brutally beat them, and they said, you will not speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. And watch what happened here. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing. That day, fulfilled, just like Jesus said, you're going to rejoice and here's why, that they were worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now, imagine that you get an invitation to the White House. And they're like, hey, we want to honor you. We want to give you some big award. And here they're saying, we want to be honored because they beat us up. Because guess who else they beat up? Our Savior Jesus. And if this is the way we get to be like him, so be it. And they are rejoicing in what happened here. So we see the miracles for the multitudes, the blessings by the Beatitudes, and then we'll bring to our last point here, the woes to the worldly. So he contrasts this. Luke says, hey, here's all the ways to be blessed, and it's not the way you think. And now I'm going to say, hey, woe to you. And woe to you, it doesn't mean necessarily curse, like I'm pronouncing curse on you. It means you're already in a cursed situation. And if you put it in a modern translation, Mr. T would say, I, I, I pity the fool. I pity the fool. When, he, when Luke is saying, woe to you, he's saying, I, I pity you that you're in this situation. How many remember that show from being a kid? Okay. Y'all, the rest of y'all look it up. All right. So he says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have your consolation. You're comfortable in this life. You better enjoy it for the next 20 years because you may be burning in hell. Again, don't confuse what I'm saying. It's not saying because you're rich, you go to hell. It's just saying if your trust is in your riches and not in the Lord, then you're in a bad situation. Proverbs 23, 20, verse 4. This, this is so important. Young people, please get this. Labor not to be rich. Cease for your, for, from your own wisdom. Do not pick a career because it will make you rich. Pick a career because that's what God called you to. Now, I am, this verse is not saying don't be rich. It's saying the reason you work hard is to please God. If God blesses that with wealth, then so be it. Some of you make a very good living, and I'm proud of you for doing that. Okay? Some people, though, will choose careers that will never pay off, like pastoring, <laughs> or like being, um, pick a profession. There are some professions that don't pay as well, but that's what God has called them to, and that's what they want to do with their life. And so you labor to please God. You labor to do the job God called you to do. And some of them will pay really well and some will pay well, but don't care about that, okay? If you choose your career because, hey, this is my fastest way to get a mansion or to drive a Corvette, then you're choosing the wrong career. He's saying stop that. Cease from your own wisdom. Let, work hard for God. And if God blesses you with a great paycheck, then great, go for it. And be responsible for your money. Be debt-free. Do all the Dave Ramsey things. Do all that, okay? I'm not, I'm not saying don't do that. In fact, the reason that Ephesians were studied on Wednesday last week, the week before last, um, was the reason God says you work hard so that you could give to others. So take care of your own family, meet your own family's need, but keep working hard, make even more money so you can help people in need, help the poor, send pe help missionaries, do all kinds of things to be generous. And then he says, woe to you, or I pity you, who are full. You know, you've got plenty to eat, you're totally satisfied, but when are you satisfied? Now. Now. For you shall be hungry. In the future, you'll, you'll be starving, spiritually speaking. Woe to you who laugh now. Life is all a big joke to you. You don't, don't take anything seriously. It's all about entertainment. 
It's embarrassing how much money Americans spend on entertainment. It's just ridiculous. I mean, uh, I, I, I won't even get started. <laughs> he said, what do you laugh now? And again, the emphasis on now. <clears throat> For you shall mourn and weep in the future. Okay? And then he says, woe to you who, when all men speak well of you. Wow, this hits home. Isn't that what all of us want? We want people to say, wow, look at you. You're so good. Wow, you did, you, you're great. And we just want praise. And there's nothing wrong with praise, but if that's what you're living for, if you just are crushed without it, he says, your trust is not in the right place. Your trust needs to be in God, not in what people say about you. Proverbs says, the fear of man, when you're concerned with what other people think, is a trap. You, you get in that trap, and it's like you can't get out. You're just so obsessed. People are depressed or discouraged because they don't get enough likes on their social media. A lot of people say, hey, good to you, good for you, good for you. He said, you know, for, so their fa fathers did to the false prophets. Notice the contrast. The true prophets in the Old Testament, they persecuted. Here are the false prophets like, hey, good for you. You're awesome. Because if you read the Old Testament, especially in Jeremiah, Jeremiah spoke up and said, hey, God told me you're all going to die because you're sinful. And, and they're like, oh, thank you, Jeremiah. You're our favorite prophet. And the other prophets say, no, no, Jeremiah is wrong. God told us that God loves you and you're going to be blessed and you guys are doing great. And they're like, oh, great, I like that prophet. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> there are churches all across America that are just like positive, man, you, you are great, be the best you you can be, you do you, great, great, great. And all of them are like, yay, praise the Lord, and they're all going to hell. Not all, not all. Generalization there, okay? Because they're just not being told the truth. The truth is we're all sinners, and we are going to die without Christ if we don't trust him to save us. And then the good news is, Yay, you can have a life that is blessed and is wonderful, okay? But you've got to mourn and weep over your sin first before you get to that place. But we're trying not to tell people the bad news. We just want to give them the fluff and the good news. And that's what they did here. They just said, hey, you false prophets, you guys are doing a great job. Keep just feeding us the good news. And then when the tragedy struck, nobody was ready for it. Jeremiah 23, I keep referring to Jeremiah. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesied to you filling you with vain hopes, false hopes. They just give you false hope. It's not based on truth. It's based on making you feel good right here, right now. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. John 12, 43 says, for they, talking about the Pharisees, they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So when we're all obsessed as pastors or as people just with the praise of other people, we're in a dangerous situation. And notice, here's the key word. All this is taught, the emphasis is on now. Now. The word secular means being focused on the now. Secular people think this is all that matters. You just live life, you die, you push up daisies. That's it. It's all about now. Just, you know, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. We're just, it's all focused on now. Christianity is focused on future. Future. I want to be blessed in heaven. I want to be live with Jesus for eternity. I can endure this hard time right now because I've got that in the future. And that's why Americans get so depressed when things go bad because like, if this is all it is, this life stinks. And it does if that's all there is. But don't focus on the now. You may have seen recently that a little boy was offered $10,000 or two Oreos. He took the Oreos. And some of you are like, and? <laughs> 
he, he's so immature, he has no comprehension of what the 10,000 would do for him later. He can't eat these pieces of green paper right now. He's like, what is this? What good does this do me? Oreos, okay? And I like Oreos, but now we're mature enough to know that we would all take the 10 grand, I'd hope, okay? And that could be very life-changing, okay? But this is us as people who choose this world's pleasures right now and we don't think someday I'm going to die and I'm going to spend eternity somewhere. It's that immature to think that way. And yet that's what our world says. In fact, what, what is one commercial out recently, if it doesn't feel good, it's not worth it. I'm like, what are you talking about? What are we teaching people? You know, and, and, it, and the, the old beer commercial, you only have to live once, you won't, won't go around, get all the gusto you can get. You know, and it's just like, this world constantly pushes you, just get it now. You know, you can't afford that car, it doesn't matter. Sign up for the eight-year payment plan and just pay four times as much for that car than it's worth. You know, but, but you will look good now. You know, buy that house, go into mega debt now. Put it, swipe it on the credit card just now, now, now. It's all about the here and the now. So the Beatitudes <clears throat> talk about being those, blessed are those who are poor and those who are hungry. And it talks about those who weep and are hated. See how the two go together? Poor and hungry go together. Weeping because you're hated go together. And look how the woes contrast it. Rich versus poor, filled versus hungry. And then also, <clears throat> Luke keeps the parallel going. Laughing versus weeping, being praised versus being hated. And again, I can't ex express it enough or emphasize enough. It's talking about now. It's not saying God doesn't want you to be rich or filled or laugh or be praised, but if you're focused on all that happening now and that's all your priority is, then you're in the wrong place. And he says, woe, or a warning to be you because you're focused on now, not on eternity. If you would really focus on eternity, that someday I will face Jesus and I will be judged for everything I did, it will change the way you behave today. But if your behavior is not changing, if you're living in bad situations, repeating the same old sinful habits, doing all the things like that, you're focused on today, not on tomorrow. And Jesus wants our focus to be eternal. <clears throat> Mark chapter 8, verse 36 says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? Imagine that. Let's say everything in the world belonged to you. You could go wherever you want, do whatever you want. But if you lose your own soul, how does that come out in the end? In Acts chapter um, 3, verse 19, God commands us all to repent. And therefore, and turn back, to turn around, that your sins may be blotted out. And I'm speaking now to those who've never accepted Christ. You've never been born again, never been saved, and your focus right now is on the here and now. Let me just tell you, there is a God who loves you, and he doesn't want you to spend eternity separated from him. He wants you to spend eternity with you. But he asks what you do is repent of your sins, say no to all those things, accept Christ to, to save you, and have all those sins blotted out and forgiven. Because the wages of your sin is death, but the free gift that Jesus offers you today, today, is God, of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And then Romans 10, 9 says, here's what you should do about that. You should confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You're not the boss of your life. He is. Give your life to him and believe in your heart that he died on the cross, was buried, and that God raised him from the dead. If you will do that, you will be saved. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for loving us. Father, help us to, to weep over our sin, to, to not worry about what the world thinks. Lord, many people hesitate to become a Christian because they're afraid what others would think. 
Lord, woe to us if we are worried about the praise of men. Father, we thank you that uh, Christ paid that price for us on the cross. I pray if there's one today that doesn't know you, that he would do so. Lord, I pray for those who, are, who do know you, they're saved, but they struggle with this. They struggle with the now versus the eternal. Lord, help us not to sacrifice the eternal on the altar of the immediate. Help us to make our priorities about the future, and not only in this life, five years from now, ten years from now, but what the future holds a billion years from now. Because we are eternal beings. We've been made in your image, so we are going to spend eternity somewhere. Help us to think about that. And that rewards from you outweigh any reward that this world can give us. We give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have more questions about salvation or any of this, uh, text me or call me. I'd love to talk to you. Uh, if you can think of someone that you wish was here to hear this message, um, do I have the next slide for you, Matt? This is freezing up. Yeah, invite someone to join you next Sunday to be in that chair next to you. Um, you can take one of those business cards out there, uh, pass that out. Uh, we actually are out of the ones with the QR code, but we, ha- we ordered 1,000 more, and we're going to hit those hard soon, so they'll be here this, uh, next Sunday. All right. Um, Michaela, would you like to help me with Q&A? You can bring your water. She was about to get a drink of water. All right. If you have a question, uh, send that in, and it looks like we have a couple right now. There you go. Um, just do that one right there. You got the today's. With the microphone? Yep, there you go. Could the woes have been addressed to the disciples in general, but pointed to Judas in particular? Was he sweating during that sermon, or could he have been dismissive that Jesus couldn't possibly mean him? Wow. Well, I don't. there's no scripture that tells us that, but we can do some sanctified speculation, right? My guess is, totally my guess, okay, I think Judas was self-deceived. I, I think he thought, yeah, I'm one of them. I'm one of them. But then he wasn't changing like they were, and he was still stealing like he used to. But then he started justifying and rationalizing. Maybe at some point he realized, maybe I'm not saved. I don't know. Um, we see a type of repentance because after they killed Jesus, he's like, what have I done? He, what did he do with the 30 pieces of silver? He took it back. He threw it down on their feet. And he's like, I don't want this. And they're like, no, tough. Deal, deal's done. And, he, and instead of, so the Bible talks about worldly grief. And, and then there's godly grief that causes repentance. Worldly grief causes self-destruction. And what did Judas do? He hung himself. Okay? So he never truly repented. He was sorry he got caught. He felt bad about his sin, but he never took his sin to Jesus and got forgiven. He could have. Think about that. The guy who betrayed Jesus could have been saved because Peter did pretty much the equivalent, and he went on to be the leader of the church. So good question. All right. That's probably something else. Anybody else have a question? Oh, okay. Let me read that. Why don't you read it? Go ahead. You have your glasses on, I don't. Does El Shaddai mean breasted one? Um, and it says the Hebrew noun shad does mean breast. Okay, so I did have the right one. Okay. All right. Any other questions, anybody? All right, cool. All right, well, let's stand. 
And we're going to read God's word as a blessing over <coughs> each other from Numbers chapter 6, verse 24. Read that loud with me, would you, in verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.